This is Hashtag Authentic, a podcast for creatives online. I'm Sarah Tasker and this is episode 61. Hey guys, just a heads up that this week's episode is dealing with the themes of food and some disordered eating and body image conversations. I actually think it's all framed in a really positive and uplifting way, but if any of those things don't feel safe for you to hear about right now for any reason, please feel free to give this one a miss. So, when I was planning my guests for 2019, I realized that there was kind of this one big elephant in the room when it came to all of the discussions we've had here about Instagram and social media and just staying sane while hanging out online. I'm talking, of course, about the whole world of wellness and nutrition and body image on Instagram. And if I'm being honest, I guess part of the reason I haven't felt able to explore the topic much is because it's still something I've not totally got my head around fully in my own life. But I am working on it. So a few months back, I discovered my guest this week and signed up for some one-to-one nutrition advice sessions with her. Back at the start, I think if anyone had asked me, I would have said I thought I was reasonably sorted about food and eating. But once I started talking to Laura and we started unpacking all of the rules and the games I had internalized that I was just trying to follow to maintain my body weight. It was like this curtain had just been lifted and I realized how much time and energy I was expending on just trying to fit in. I knew then that I absolutely had to get Laura onto the show to talk about her work as well as how she's used the internet and podcasting in particular to build up her business. And as she just so happens to have a book that has come out this very week, it seemed like the perfect opportunity. Here's our chat. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Sarah. Thanks for having me. This is nice. It's nice to be talking to you the other way around because I've been working with you as a client for anyone who doesn't know. So yeah, this is nice to be on the other side of it. Well, I wasn't sure if you were going to say anything, but I guess you just let the cat stray out of the bag. Um, But yeah, it does. It feels very surreal. And also because I'm a podcaster, I'm used to asking the questions as well. And so with the whole with the whole book thing at the moment, everyone's asking me the questions (laughs) and I'm like (laughs) a little hot under the collar. So tell everybody who you are and what you do. So I am a registered nutritionist is my sort of primary job, I suppose. I'm also a podcaster and an author and a student. I'm doing a master's degree at the moment. So I have a few different hats. And registered nutritionist, I feel like that doesn't fully encompass what you do. Because if people have had experience of working with nutritionists in the past, or maybe they have an idea in their head of what a nutritionist is, what is, what makes you unique? Yeah, so I'm also a certified intuitive eating counselor. So that's kind of a little like added bonus qualification I have on top of my degrees in nutrition. And that so that means that I work in a using an intuitive eating framework for my practice, which we can get into the ins and outs of what intuitive eating is. But basically, I'm not the kind of nutritionist where you come to see me, I give you a meal plan and then send you off and tell you to go do that. Um, I'm using this intuitive eating framework, which is about learning to recognize and interpret and understand the signals that your body is sending you for what, when, and how much to eat, rather than paying attention to external cues like diet rules and restrictions and all the stuff that gets sort of shoved down our throats at this time of year. Um, 
and and really helping people kind of break away from rigid restrictive dieting and moving towards a more intuitive approach to food and nutrition. See, when you say it like that, it sounds so sensible and so reasonable. (laughs) And yet it's also entirely radical. Well, it's so difficult and and sort of countercultural from, you know, we're steeped in diet culture, which teaches us that if we don't follow these external rules and restrictions that I don't know, we're doomed to an eternity of, I don't even know what, <laughs> enjoying the food that we eat? <laughs> oh, no. Uh, I know. And, and it is. It is the most sensible advice, really, in nutrition. But it, it feels often very scary for people to hear that um, because we've, we're just so entrenched in diet culture. Absolutely. So could could you define diet culture for anyone who's kind of new to hearing that term or feels like they can't spot it for themselves? I I can try and define it. Um, It's this is the the sort of tricky thing with diet culture is it's sort so ingrained and it's kind of woven into the fabric of everything. So um, some people might think of diet culture as the very overt in your face, like diet adverts and like all those sayings that you see on Instagram, like sweat is just fat crying, right? That's just like very blatant diet mm-hmm. culture. The The thing that I think is more insidious about diet culture is the stuff that isn't so apparent, uh, but it still has a massive, massive impact on how we think about ourselves, how we see ourselves, how we feel about ourselves. And these are th- these are the things like um, lack of body diversity in the media. Um, and 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 just these very insidious messages that I see sort of really around this time of year where everyone's kind of got this diet culture backlash going, diet diet companies have sort of shape-shifted. So the best example of this is Weight Watchers, I think, which recently rebranded as WW or Wellness That Works. And so they've kind of <laughs> they've kind of resurfaced as this wellness company and they're making claims about, you know, improving your confidence and being the best version of you. But ultimately, it's still about shrinking your body, losing weight and and building your self-worth and your self-value on this really really precarious foundation of what your body looks like. I'm sure there might be people listening who are thinking, but that's healthy, right? Like to shrink your body is what we are told is healthy. Losing weight is healthy. So surely they're doing like a public service. Uh, yeah, this is a this is a this is a tough thing to kind of um, wrap your head around if you if you're just coming to this for the first time. But I would I would encourage everyone who's listening to just think about how much brain space they have devoted to the work of sort of perfecting their bodies, right? Trying to lose weight, um, worrying about what food they're eating, how much food they're eating, worrying about uh, what diet they're going to try next, how much time they've spent doing that sort of mental acrobatics of like, well, if I eat this cookie, then I have to run this many miles. Or Mm -hmm. if I have these potatoes, then I can't have the bread because that's too many carbs. And just this sort of constant conversation that goes back and forth in in our minds. Um, And that really 
can and well well let me say that again what what can end up happening is that we feel guilty and anxious and stressed out about the food choices that we're making. Um, we get caught in a, a, a yo-yo cycle of dieting where our, our weight goes up and down and up and down, which actually is not particularly healthy for us, nor is all that anxiety and that noise in our brain, right? Anxiety, a lot of people don't realize this, but anxiety is actually a, a, a contributing risk factor for type 2 diabetes. So if you are, um, you know, eating the, the quote-unquote sort of perfect diet, but it's making you anxious if you um, if you can't be flexible or if you uh, you know you you go out to eat and you're worried about if there's something on the menu that fits your plan. If if you're getting stressed out about that, then that perfect diet isn't all that healthy for you, right? Totally. And this like this definitely matches my experience. I'm, I'm sure it matches the experience of so many people <laughs> listening. Like I've. I've done it. I have controlled my body for years and I've done it kind of very deliberately with the calorie counting apps and, you know, trying to break even every day, trying to be a net loss every day. And I've also just done it in that series of rules that you carry around in your head all the time that you, they come from like magazines you read as a teenager and things your mum tells you and things your <laughs> friends tell you and they all sort of stack up. And I, I mean, I can't look at any plate of food and not immediately know how many calories are in it like that's just ingrained in my brain for forever I think my husband's quite a natural intuitive eater and he said something really interesting to me just last week he, he said that he'd never felt guilty after eating anything in his whole life and he was really it was the first time he'd really realized he was like it makes me feel so sad that you do that like most days mm-hmm. and yeah. I think most women feel that way most days they do. And and I have to hold my hands up as well and say, like, I've been there. Like, I joke sometimes with my clients that I'm like a walking MyFitnessPal because that that was literally ingrained into me in my training. I had to be able to regurgitate the number, you know, the number of grams of carbohydrate or how many calories were in a particular food. Because if you're working in a clinical setting and you have to figure out, okay, this patient needs X number of calories in order to live, you need to know that information, right? You need to be able to kind of plan a menu for yeah. them. So in, in a lot of senses, like it, it, you need to know that as part of your training and nutrition. But on the other hand, it makes you batshit about, <laughs> about food. And I think another really important uh, thing to add to this conversation is that in in our society, we have such a myopic focus on weight as being the determinant of health. Mm. And actually, if we look at the scientific evidence, what we'll see is that there's actually um, a really interesting phenomenon where people who are in that what's considered to be the overweight category, if we're talking about BMI categories, and that's problematic for a whole host of reasons. <laughs> but but if we're talking about um, that, what we see is that there's not a linear relationship between BMI and disease risk. There's actually what's called a J-shaped curve. So if you can imagine just a very soft, like a tick almost, mm. um, we see that actually the people who are in that overweight category have the lowest risk of death. Um, and that could be because, you know, if you, if you're carrying a few extra pounds, not extra pounds, but if you have a slightly higher BMI, you have a higher body weight that confers an advantage if you are to get ill, for instance, because you have some reserves, let's yeah. just put it that way. Uh, so 
what what we know is that um, it's not that linear relationship between BMI and and disease risk as a lot of people assume it is. And we also know that the the main determinants of health are actually things like cardiometabolic health or uh, to put that in sort of simpler terms, just your fitness level is a, is a stronger predictor of health risk than, um, than just BMI alone. BMI is kind of a crappy measure really of, of disease risk. Um, so we have to kind of challenge that narrative that we hear a lot in the media that being above a certain BMI is really bad for you, that it's a death sentence. And, you know, all of the the sort of rhetoric around the obesity epidemic is really problematic. And I think it fuels a lot of what a lot of fear around our weight. And it kind of keeps us in the diet cycle. I find as well, I'm sure you've noticed this, it, it often gives people a justification for their fat phobia. So they we, you know, we're, we're kind of brainwashed into thinking bigger bodies are somehow bad, but being yeah. able to say, well, I'm just worried about your health kind of gives people an excuse to hate on bigger bodies. Yeah. And it's just like, I need to, I can't make this clear or I can't stress this enough that by just by looking at somebody's body, you cannot tell anything about their health risk. You know, I, I think we, we, you're right in what you say. We make a lot of judgments about people. We sort of, um, and I hear my lecturers say things like this as well, that, oh, people at the higher end of the weight spectrum have worse diets. That's not true. Or um, i trying to think of another example off the top of my head, um, that people uh, a higher body weight must not exercise. That's not true. You, you can't tell anything about a person's health behaviors just by looking at their at their bodies um and and the same is true for thin people as well they can have what's called um a lot of visceral fat meaning uh fat around our organs and our sort of abdomen area um and that's actually a stronger predictor of whether or not you will have um metabolic disease like things like type 2 diabetes for instance than um just your total weight I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm explaining this the best I can, Sarah, but let's go with this. Um, so people at either, or, you know, at any point in the weight spectrum can have a lot of uh, visceral fat, which would put them at a higher risk of disease. And you can't tell that just by looking at someone, you know, just by looking at pictures of someone or seeing them on the street because it's invisible to the naked eye, but it, could, it affects people all across the weight spectrum. A friend and I were looking at pictures on Facebook the other day of both of our bodies when they were smaller, kind of pre-kids, um, mm -hmm. you know, in our 20s. And um, we were both kind of swooning slightly over our younger bodies. But also I was going, I felt like crap all the time. Like I was always yeah. cold. I was always tired. And I know this isn't everyone's experience of being in a smaller body. But like for me, I was not meeting my body's nutritional needs, I'm pretty sure. Um yeah. You know, I, I was, I was starving myself, but I still look at those pictures and think, oh, you know, that's, that's when I was healthier. That's when I was fitter. And it's really hard to kind of pull that back out of your brain and uproot it and go, no, this isn't, this isn't the truth I've been told it is. Yeah. It's really difficult to challenge it. I think because diet culture is so pervasive and it teaches us, right, that we're more valuable when our bodies take up less space. Um, 
and I think that that's a pretty deliberate patriarchal move if we're going to get into it yeah. to just keep us slightly subdued. You know, if we're if we're constantly hungry, we we can't be reaching our full potential. It's just not possible. Completely. And and it kind of has been working for now for generations, hasn't it? This idea that like hmm. the preoccupation with our bodies, with how we look, with being constantly hungry. And then now this whole movement for like super fitness and, and tracking your macros and having mm. like fitness trackers. And what I've found for myself is if I'm doing all of that, I can do it all and I can keep it all in balance. And I can spin all of those plates, but I can't really achieve very much else. Yeah. Like yeah. It takes it, all my resources. It takes up so much uh, brain power and yeah, just bandwidth in our yeah. <laughs> all consuming. And I, I've said before to people, I don't think I could have built my business if I was still doing that. Like I had to let something go in order to make what I've made. And like it's, it's given me so much more than just a body that conforms to like certain aesthetic ideals. Yeah. And that's something else that I sometimes encourage clients to to think about Um Often, often, you know, when you when you start the intuitive eating process, I don't know what what your body is going to do, right? I don't know if you're going to gain weight, lose weight, stay the same weight. It it's so variable and it depends on each individual. And we all have a sort of genetically determined blueprint for what our weight's going to be, what our healthy weight for us is going to be, which is called our set point weight. But if you are worried about gaining weight. Uh, which is a totally normal, reasonable, um, you know, fear to have based on the sort of climate that we are all socialized in. But I encourage people to think about, okay, but what else do you stand to gain by going through this process? Mm -hmm. Right. And so that speaks to, to what you're talking about. You know, can I grow my business? Can I, will I have the capacity to, you know, do, I don't know, volunteer work or think of things that are bigger than ourselves. Like there's so much going on in this world that needs our attention. Um, you know, we could put our time, energy, effort, resources, money, everything towards rather than just trying to micromanage our bodies. So we have so much more to gain, I think, um, than just maybe a couple of pounds. <laughs> yes, that's the perfect way to put it. So I've totally kind of whizzed ahead in my plan for what I wanted to talk to you about because I can never not not start talking <laughs> about this with you. Um, but I'm really interested because I don't actually know the answer to this. How did you get to doing what you do now? Like what was your kind of career path? Okay, I have one other thing that I wanted to just say on issues yes. before we switch gears because I just want to make this absolutely clear um, that – going through the intuitive eating process means putting weight loss to the side, but it is still a very health promoting intervention. And, and we have a lot of evidence and the evidence base is small in terms of the scientific evidence that's getting bigger and bigger. And it's showing that there, that, that intuitive eating can help with physiological health. So it can potentially help reduce things like disease risk for cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes. But also in terms of our psychological and emotional health, there's some really, really strong evidence now that intuitive eating is, is a health promoting intervention. So I don't want anyone to go away thinking, 
oh, well, uh, if I lose weight or if I do intuitive eating, I'm going to gain weight and become unhealthy because that is the complete opposite of what intuitive eating is. So I just wanted to yeah. round out that thought there. I'm really glad you said that because that is really key, actually. Like it's it's not running counter to the to people's health. It's It's supporting people in being healthy. Yeah, totally. And it's still like one of the principles of intuitive eating is is gentle nutrition. So it's taking what we know from nutritional sciences and just applying it in a way that's not all or nothing, black or white or super rigid. So for instance, thinking about, okay, what can we add into our diets that is going to support our sense of well-being rather than take away from our diets, which makes us feeling deprived and makes us feeling batshit around food. So just wanted to tie a little bow around that that thought. So I hope that, that that's clear for the listeners. But thank you. In terms of my business, um, ooh, just trying to think. So I started out in in academia. Um, I did a PhD and a postdoc. So I was, you know, doing research. Um, and then when I moved back to the UK, I'd been in the States doing my PhD and postdoc. Um, I, I knew that I wanted to work for myself and I wanted to go freelance. So, um, I was kind of, I was working in a coffee shop and then building a website and doing all that stuff on the side. And then, um, my, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into. I'm just telling you my life story. Yeah, no, this is good. <laughs> but um, my then boyfriend, now husband, got offered a job in London. And so I thought, okay, sure, let's um, let's do it. And so we moved to London. And I almost had to kind of like build my business from scratch again after having lived in Leeds for a year. So that was an interesting kind of, I wouldn't say it set me back to square one, but it it, it put me back quite mm. a bit. And what year was this? This was, so I think we moved to London in 2015. Mm-hmm. So been in London for almost four years now. Um, and I, I guess I did the, I, I did a lot of like shitty little jobs basically. <laughs> so I would, um, I would be, you know, trying to contact like local yoga instructors or Pilates instructors and cafes and seeing if we could put on like workshops and brunches and stuff like that to talk about nutrition. And at that point in time, the focus of my business was more on like plant-based eating. And it was more of a, what I would consider to be like a traditional nutrition sort of, Mm -hmm. yeah, business. Um, and and, and it just wasn't getting any traction. Like people just weren't interested in what I was doing. <laughs> and I realized like, I guess I got to a point where I was like, I was looking for jobs. I was looking for full-time jobs. I interviewed with, with some places. Um, obviously my heart wasn't in it though, because I didn't get any of those <laughs> jobs. But um, I, I decided like I needed to to try something else and sort of switch tactics. And that is at the, the point that I started my podcast. And I think that really saved my business, basically. I think that that, um, get, you know, at that point, not many people had a podcast. Now everyone has a podcast, but mm. <laughs> at that point, not many people had a podcast. And I was just calling out all the BS in the world of nutrition, you know, myth busting. It was kind of at the time where like clean eating was really popular and everyone was eating coconut oil. And I was like, (laughs) hold on. (laughs) 
this is this is not what you think it is. Um, and I started writing articles for the Huffington Post blog, which again got a little bit of traction. And so, um, in in sort of parallel with that, I started seeing a few more clients, and I realized that it wasn't. They were all kind of suffering what I call a clean eating hangover, right? So they had taken on board all of the advice from nutrition gurus on Instagram who, PS, don't have any nutrition qualifications. <laughs> and 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 they just kind of fall in for this stuff hook, line, and sinker. And I could see that it, it was really, it, it wasn't delivering all the promises that had been made for like boundless energy mm. and glowy skin and all of that kind of stuff. And that's where I noticed like clients were really struggling with the guilt and the anxiety associated with eating. And, um, really they had poor relationships with food and their body. And that's when I did a little bit of retraining around intuitive eating and, um, yeah, just did, did a lot of reading of the literature and CPD and all of that kind of stuff. And, and I started talking about it on the podcast and on my Instagram, and it, it really seemed to resonate with a lot of people. And so I was really nervous about taking that plunge because yeah. I'd always been quite like generalist in, in my nutrition work. Um, but I, I, yeah, I was just like almost forced down that route in a way, like it found me and kind of dragged me down rather than me being like, okay, I'm going to do this. Um, so yeah. And then, and then once I started talking about that a lot more, um, it, it kind of just snowballed from there, I suppose. That's really interesting because kind of what you're describing is a combination, I guess, of like following your own interest as a practitioner mm -hmm. and also kind of listening to your audience, listening to your customers Mm. Um, and tapping into what felt like it had, like sometimes something just has legs, doesn't it? And you're like, ah, oh, okay. Like this, this is resonating with people. This is, yeah. is taking me somewhere. I wonder like, yeah. where do you think your business would be now? And where would you be personally if you hadn't found intuitive eating? Oh my God. I would probably be like the nutritionist for Sainsbury's or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> Making those recipe cards. No, I wouldn't because they rejected me, but that's enough. <laughs> But yeah, I would, I, I mean, I might, I might have probably would have gone back into academia, I would imagine. Um, and I say that like gone back into academia, but I am still kind of in academia. Like mm. I said, I'm doing my master's at the moment. So I'm, I'm doing research and that is to kind of scratch that itch that I've had for doing research. Um, and, and that's, that's really what I, what my like formative training was to be a researcher um so yeah I I imagine I'm, I might be there which is really weird to, yeah. to think it wouldn't be the worst thing like I really like teaching and um you know I hope to do more of that in the future but it's yeah completely different from what I'm doing now I wonder so I have kind of a clinical background in the NHS previously yeah. and I I think one of the things that immediately resonated with me when I first discovered you, I think I found you, I wish I could remember what article, but it was some article, I'd, I'd heard some claim about some diet that was going to change my life and immediately Googled it and read an article from some mainstream publication and all the dietitians and advice in it was going, yeah, this is brilliant, this is going to change your life. And then somewhere near the end was you basically going, <laughs> yeah, no, this, this kind of sounds like a load of bullshit. 
Oh, I wonder what that was. And I was like, oh, I like this. I like this woman. (laughs) You were like, here's the science. Nah. And um, I immediately clicked to your website. And in fact, within probably about 10 minutes of reading that, I'd booked a call with you because it just resonated. I was just like, yes, this is her. This is her. (laughs) But I'm increasingly surprised by how we're almost living in like an anti-science backlash moment in time Mm. do you do you sense this as well I mean we see it with like the old anti-vax kind of community Mm. online um there's obviously the anti-global warming Mm uh narrative that goes on especially in politics um and it seems to be around food an awful lot as well but almost like this idea that well science is wrong you can't trust science yeah there there definitely is that sort of in the ether and I think what confuses that even more is that there are people who are qualified doctors or academics and they're, you know, claiming one set of things. And then you have another set of academics and doctors claiming another set of things. Like all of these different um, camps, I suppose, within nutrition that makes it really, really difficult to to sift through and, and know, like, is this a person that I should be able to trust? Because you can't necessarily just rely on credentials and qualifications anymore. Um, because basically, you can go on to PubMed and find evidence that supports almost any hypothesis mm. that you could come up with. Um, and, and so, yeah, I like, as a as a lay person, it must, I've, I find that it must be so difficult to sift through all of, you know, all of the noise and figure out like, okay, what is actually true? What's actually going to be beneficial and what's just a load of crap basically. Yeah. And like, which of these research papers can I trust? Because quite often it takes a lot of digging, like, okay, these are the names associated with it. Let me just Google them. Oh, look, they work for the company that produces the drug that was behind the study. Kind of, There's a lot of pressure, I think, as well for researchers to be publishing results and, you know, because of kind of the financial climate and people Mm -hmm. are are trying to keep Mm -hmm. their jobs. So there's kind of this toxic soup of information out there and, and we're not qualified as lay people to to decipher it but it it kind of feels like we almost could yeah and I think that there are a lot of really loud voices from of people who aren't necessarily trained or qualified to look at research and interpret it and say okay is this a good study or or not you know we've got a lot of people just going online finding an abstract and being like this is the evidence that this diet is the best diet Mm. in the world um and and that can make like headline news that yeah. can be like, especially something like the Daily Mail. That's enough oh, for God. a front page spread. It's it's really it's really terrifying. And so, um, you know, one sort of, I guess there's no like one solution to sorting through the noise. If we're kind of thinking, you know, for listeners, like, okay, well, how can I make sense of it? You kind of have to look at a combination of things, right? You need to look at. And, and check people's qualifications and check their registration um, is valid and, and not just like 
you know, they had this qualification 10 years ago and they mm. haven't renewed it or something like that. And that varies from profession to profession. And there are also, especially in nutrition, there are organizations who look legit, who aren't really legit, mm. um, and which, which makes it confusing again. So the things to check for in particular, um, for nutrition, I would always recommend seeing either a registered nutritionist registered by the Healthcare Professions Council or a registered nutritionist registered by the um, Association for Nutrition, which is my professional body. And there are other qualifications um, and some of those practitioners are great. There are some sketchy dodgy ones, uh, but registered dietitians and registered nutritionists have to have a degree, at least a degree in nutrition, which is not true of the others. They're more like diploma kind of things. Right. And do you have to do CPD as part of the registration as well? You do as you have to do. I think for AFN, it's something like 30 hours a year or something. And you have to renew your registration every year. For anyone who's not familiar, CPD is continued professional development. So that's like learning constantly Mm -hmm. to keep your uh, learning kind of up to date keep it fresh. Yeah. And, and then the other thing is, um, you know, people, if if someone is telling you something and you ask them for the evidence on that, that they provide you with the evidence and, and explain that to you rather than just kind of deflecting and telling you to prove them wrong, (laughs) which happens an awful lot, just shifting the, the burden of proof. Um, and I guess one other thing that I say is like, if it strays too far from common sense, then that's a big red flag for me because, you know, we see all these headlines all of the time in nutrition, like coffee causes cancer, coffee cures cancer. (laughs) And then, you know, like this diet is the best diet. No, this diet is the best diet. Is it low carb? Is it high fat? Like, or yeah, whatever permutation of macronutrients that is sort of on vogue at the moment. Um, and and really, there are all these flashy headlines, but the the core advice for a healthy diet has not changed very much in the past fifty years. Okay, <laughs> we we kind of know the things that work for us. Um, you know, eating plenty of fresh fruits and vegetables, or frozen or canned, um, whole grains, some fish if you eat fish a source of calcium or, you know, so dairy or a dairy alternative, um, and, you know, meat, if you want to eat meat, otherwise getting protein from things like nuts, beans, legumes, right? Like it's not really rocket science (laughs) at the end of the day. Um, and sure, like within that there's variation in terms of, of what feels best for different people. Um, and if they certainly, if they have different conditions to manage, then a different combination of foods might be best for them. But if it's, you know, like too far out or too extreme, like celery juice, (laughs) there's no evidence whatsoever that that does anything. Um, then, then yeah, I would swerve it. Right. If you can't really like cross check it on somewhere really sensible. And I know this is not super sexy advice, but like with the NHS or, or, or the, the BDA or somebody that's like pretty, um, you know, like I, uh, people talk shit a lot about the dietary guidelines that we have in this country. And yes, nobody is saying that you follow that, you know, verbatim for every single meal that you eat, but actually it's a pretty solid starting off place because it represents the scientific consensus 
at that, you know, at this point in time, it represents, you know, there's an entire committee of people who, who sort of dedicate their careers to sifting through the scientific literature and saying, okay, we're not really totally sure about this, but we actually, we have a lot of evidence about this thing. So let's put that in. And really anything over and above that is sort of an academic debate. And it's not something that you as an individual really need to get bogged down in that sort of minutia of detail. Does that make sense? Completely. And like, um, one of the subreddits I had to unsubscribe from when I started working with you (laughs) was water fasting. Because I was totally seduced by I mean, I have to say I never tried it. I just read about it a lot. But these people who absolutely swear that um, I think the longest person on there had gone something like 80 days on a water fast. And they have these like powdered greens that they have to try and keep their macronutrients up or something. What? No. Oh my yeah. God, that's so dangerous. You're so, putting yourself at risk yeah. of refeeding syndrome. So the, the point where, I, yeah, they talk about refeeding syndrome all the time. And I'm like, what is this? And the point where I was like, I need to unsubscribe was someone who was like, I've not stopped vomiting for three days. I can't keep water down. What do I do? Because I don't want to break my fast. And I was like, you go to hospital? Like, why are you asking people on the internet with no qualifications the answer? So refeeding syndrome is a really, really dangerous thing. And it requires like significant medical management. It has a very high mortality rate. Like, this is this is one of the things that is um you know one of the major major risk factors in in anorexia nervosa in terms of mortality risk is refeeding syndrome because it's very difficult to manage it needs constant round the clock monitoring by medical professionals who know what they're doing you need to have bloods drawn so you can manage your electrolyte levels because what can happen is it can well basically you can have a heart attack because of electrolyte shifts and die. Like it's really serious. This is what I'm talking about. Like (laughs) that's not on that NHS website. Warm fasting is (laughs) not recommended. So it's probably safe to, to say that you should avoid that. Yeah. And that is so easy to be sucked in. Like, I feel like I'm a reasonably sensible person. And I I was subscribing to this forum and reading these things and people were talking about the health benefits they were feeling. And, it's amazing kind of how slippery the slope is I suppose Um, I know I know not that I think I ever could live more than 20 minutes on a water fast (laughs) but you know (laughs) Um, kind of on a related point I suppose a lot of what you're saying um, goes counter to beliefs that people hold quite strongly often quite emotionally as well and and close to their heart and I know from following you on Instagram that there have been occasions where some of your more radical statements um have attracted the attention of people who who are not very happy with you I wonder how you cope with that oh well to be completely honest not very well yeah it's um, it's really difficult when like someone sends a hundred thousand followers after you. <laughs> it's it's not nice. I've even had people like track down my email address and send me like email, like 
it's not just on social media. Like yeah. it, it, it shows up in, in other places as well. And so when that kind of thing happens, turn comments off, get out of Instagram, mm. <laughs> uh, meditate. Um, and, and, and just, I just do whatever I can to take my mind off of it because otherwise it will, it will bother me and it yeah. will affect me. Well, which is completely human. Like, yeah, you didn't get into this line of work because you wanted to hurt people. You're here to try and help people. Yeah. And, and like you said that some, some of my more radical messages are, you know, set people off, but like, they're not that radical. They're not that radical. (laughs) I was like, I was like, Hey, this study shows that we don't have to get like freaked out about pesticides because there's no evidence that, that these particular pesticides cause cancer or or whatever the, I can't remember the exact Mm. thing, but then this like crazy doctor in the U S that promotes Gerson therapy, which is one, which has absolutely no evidence. And she's, she's got this like line of herbal supplements and like, she's basically just preying on these really, really vulnerable people. Like I can't imagine anything more vulnerable than, you know, or being in a more vulnerable place and more desperate place than having cancer. And then someone's like, oh yeah, buy my supplements and do this ridiculously restrictive diet to cure your cancer. And and I'm just like, I can't even express how much that makes my blood boil that, that people are taking advantage of like that. And people die from this because they eschew, you know, actual science and actual medicine and, and everything we've learned in sort of decades and decades of cancer research and and just basically eat fruit and take herbs like it, it just blows my mind it's, um, it's really frightening it and it because it appeals to a side of us that wants things to be simple and wants to have control and yeah. like it's intelligent people get drawn into these kind of ideas because they appeal to really human aspects of us don't mm-hmm. they yeah and I I should say, like this is not something that like I'm a super expert in but um there's a great book if I can recommend it um called The Angry Chef and it's written by uh, a food journalist writer I guess he's a chef as well <laughs> but he has a biochemistry degree and um he's written so his name's Anthony Warner his book's called The Angry Chef he has a great blog as well and his first book um just like tears apart all of these kinds of quack alternative therapies and it sort of starts with the very sort of almost describes that slippery slope that you were talking about before Sarah like you can get sucked into oh, like a green juice is good for you. And then to the extreme end of that, which is, oh, I'm just going to drink juice for, you know, three months or whatever. And yeah. that's going to cure whichever ailment I have. Um, and he, and so he talks about like the evidence base behind it, like quacks that are peddling this stuff and how, you know, a seemingly benign trend 
like clean eating can become really dark and really dangerous really, really quickly. Um, so I would recommend his book for, for more on that. Well, while we're talking about books, you have written <laughs> one. And um, at the time this goes out, I think it is going to be just out in stores. Is that right? Yeah. So releases on the 10th of January, which is very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> exciting slash terrifying I imagine yeah, for yeah. all the reasons we've just mentioned um tell us about the book then so the book is what I would like to think is a really practical down-to-earth guide to intuitive eating so it somewhat follows the sort of path I would go down with clients and sort of the I guess the trajectory of going through intuitive eating um, in, in sort of, it's my interpretation of how to practice intuitive eating basically. Um, but it starts off with kind of uh, just a dismantling of diet culture and all of the reasons why we become so weird and obsessed and just nuts about food in the first place. Um, Cause I think it, it's really helpful to have that context. Like we all have our own interpersonal reasons as to as to why we might have a strange relationship with food, but then it's it's all upheld by the culture that we live in and reinforced by the culture that we live in. So I think it's really helpful to just dismantle that um, or eviscerate it, as as Dolly Alderton said in the Sunday <laughs> Times. <laughs> I'm never going to stop saying that. Um, so yeah, just kind of taking down diet culture first of all, and then helping you figure out what intuitive eating looks like for you, because there is no one way. There is no right way. There's no, you know, like with dieting, there's always a bandwagon that you can fall off of, right? Yeah. In intuitive eating, we're completely obliterating the bandwagon so that, that you can't mess up. It's all just a series of learning opportunities and, and figuring out what works best for you. And so I present, you know, like almost like a toolkit of different options. And then you pick and choose what resonates with you, what sits with you. And if you don't like it, then can the rest. So that's basically what the book is. So it's called Just Eat It. Mm-hmm. It has a lovely donut on the front cover, which I feel like tells people an <laughs> awful lot about you straight away, which I love. <laughs> Um, and it's available everywhere, I'm guessing. Yeah, I think like Waterstones, Foils, uh, Amazon, of course, just like the places where you find books. All good bookstores. Um, so I have a little list I want to run through actually with you of, um, these are like my quick fire rumors or like things about food that I hear all the Mm -hmm. time that I want to know if they're science or not science. Okay. I wish I had a jingle. I should have a jingle now, like, science or not science. You can make one. Yeah, I'm going to put that one works. in. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you should drink eight glasses of water a day. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be water, but that's the a- approximate amount of fluid that you should be drinking a day. It could come from, like, tea and coffee and herbal tea or juice. Um, but, yeah, it doesn't have to just be water. Okay. That wasn't very quick, sorry. No, that's good. That's as quick as I think they're all going to need a little bit. Um, We haven't evolved yet to digest dairy and or wheat. That's bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) That's total bullshit. So there 
are some people obviously who have celiac disease and um, lactose intolerance, but those people will know all about it. If you suspect that you have either of those things, then go to your doctor immediately. Don't just cut the food out, particularly for celiac disease, because you actually need to have eaten gluten recently in order to get a positive diagnosis for for celiac disease so don't cut it out yes because I was tested for it and I think you have to have been eating gluten for like four weeks before yeah four to six weeks yeah and and you have to be eating a lot of gluten like I think it's five or six slices or or the equivalent of five or six slices of bread a day it's a lot I've got that nailed (laughs) um (laughs) bacon causes cancer uh, the dose makes the poison. Uh. <laughs> so it's yeah. not, it's not as straightforward of that as that it increases the risk, but the amount of bacon that you would have to eat to have a significant increased risk is a lot. Like you basically have to just be eating bacon all day, which <laughs> I'm guessing that most people don't. And, um, you know, it, it also depends on the context of the rest of your diet. If you're, you know, mostly eating, a balanced, varied diet the rest of the time, then bacon's going to have absolutely no consequence whatsoever. Carbs make you fat. Incorrect. (laughs) Um, Losing weight is just a matter of willpower. No, uh, we have a biologically determined set point and your body will do everything that it can to defend that set point. Uh, so for instance, if, if you lower your energy intake, then it will just increase your appetite signals. It will slow down your metabolism. It, it will do everything it can to stay at that set point weight. And in fact, what it will do is every time you go on a diet, it will kind of bump that set point weight up so that when you regain weight, you will regain more than you previously had so that you have a kind of buffer for, because your body is it's smart in a lot of ways, but it's stupid in a lot of other ways. And it, it, it thinks that you know, it anticipates, um, like a famine. Yeah. And so it will have, it will kind of build in a little buffer or a little reserve for next time that there's a famine. It makes, <laughs> to- it makes total sense. It's also like the least popular thing in the world to say, I've discovered nobody wants to hear that. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm sure you're aware. <laughs> Welcome to my life. <laughs> um, if you feel hungry, you're probably just thirsty. So you should have a drink. This, oh, this drives me nuts. <laughs> um, I think this is this is a case of diet culture sort of infiltrating our thinking. It's similar to, you know, um, you know, foods, foods that like that list in women's health. It's like foods that keep you fuller for longer. Yeah. Like it's just making us afraid of our appetites and our hunger. And what can happen then is if we ignore our hunger, we have this like backlash effect where we end up eating anything and everything in sight and inhaling our food without it even touching the sides. So, okay, that was a slight tangent, but to answer your question, thirst has a very specific um, manifestation in the body, right? Like you, you will have a slightly dry mouth, you, you know, everyone knows what thirst feels like. Um, whereas hunger can show up in a few different places in your body, but there's a really objective way to check if you're thirsty or not. And that's just to look at the color of your pee. If it's really dark, then that's an indication that you maybe haven't drank enough. If it's like a pale straw color, then that's a good sign that, that you have drank enough. So, um, but in my book, I talk about all the different ways that hunger can show up 
in your body. And it's not just that like pit of your belly growling that we often associate with hunger. Right. And that like, I'm totally guilty of that. For me, I'm not hungry (laughs) unless I'm starving and everything else before that gets completely ignored. And that's like something I've been working on with you, but it's hard because I've spent 30 years ignoring everything except I think I'm going to digest my own organs now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough, but um, I've, there's, there are a few really like practical exercises in the book that hopefully help people clear that up. And presumably like if you feel hungry, just eat. <laughs> That's kind of the point. Yeah. <laughs> um, e numbers make kids hyperactive. There were a couple of e numbers, I believe associated with hyperactivity in the nineties, but they've been withdrawn from the food supply. So it's not something that you have to worry about. Good Sugar also doesn't make kids hyperactive. Um, what? That. Yeah, I did a post on it. Maybe I can give you a link for the show notes. Actually, yes, one of my colleagues who's a, a, a child um, nutritionist, a registered nutritionist, she, her name's Sarah Dempster. And um, yeah, she wrote a post for my advent calendar. And I'll give you the link so you can share it in the show notes because it's kind of mind blowing. And she did a really good job of just summarizing the evidence on it. Amazing. Um, intermittent fasting. Oh my God. It's just, it's a diet and all diets work the same way, which is to reduce your total energy intake. But as we've kind of alluded to diets don't work and your body will do everything it can to, to defend your set point weight. So, you know, it might, it might help you lose weight in the short term, but long-term there's no evidence that it, it will result in sustained weight loss. And so I, you know, I advocate for intuitive eating, which is listening to your body's signals for hunger and fullness and and just obliterating that diet bandwagon. Yeah. Instead of eating to a clock, which has no idea what you're actually doing with your body that day. Yeah. Um, Bulletproof coffee. That's just ridiculous. Like I can't, (laughs) I once heard, I, I once heard the guy that invented bulletproof coffee say that he gave it to his kids for breakfast and it kept them like, it stopped them from, having like too much energy and I was like yeah because they're hungry (laughs) (laughs) you're giving your kid an eating disorder that's why who gives kids caffeine anyway like I but they like he gave it to them instead of food that's outrageous like kids are supposed to have loads of energy (laughs) that's the point (laughs) of being a kid oh my goodness um okay a couple more acne is caused by bad diet no um, again, I'm not like a, I'm not a skin expert. Someone who great to follow for that is Angeli Matto. And she dismantles the evidence, uh, behind that. There is some evidence that, um, some foods can increase your risk slightly, but it's definitely not the whole story. It's just another way, I think, of blaming people for their afflictions in the end, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And so if you're really struggling with acne, the best thing to do is to see your GP. And last one then, processed sugar is evil. No, (laughs) sugar is sugar. It doesn't matter if it came from a coconut or a maple tree or (laughs) a bee. Um, Like it all behaves the same way in our body. And again, I've, I've written lots about myths around sugar and maybe I can give you a couple of links to pop in the show notes, but sugar is not addictive. There's no difference between refined sugar and unrefined sugar. It doesn't cause sugar 
like sugary foods don't necessarily cause sugar crashes. That's kind of a made up term. So, um, yeah, I can give you links to, so people can do a little bit of reading around that stuff. There's so many myths in nutrition. So many, I feel like, yeah, we've just scratched the surface with that list, but, yeah. um, I, they, I've picked those ones cause they're ones that have come up in conversations recently with friends and I've been like, I don't know if that's true. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask Laura. Yeah, so. it's difficult because people, like a lot of these things sound like they're, they're common sense. Like the, oh, well, if I, if I eat, um, I don't know, if I eat a piece of cake, it's going to cause a sugar crash. That seems reasonable. That seems intuitive. But actually, because there's protein, because there's fat in that cake or whatever food that we're talking about, we usually don't eat you know, foods or single nutrients in isolation, the, the, the other nutrients in that food pr- provide kind of like a buffer and they slow down the release of sugar into your bloodstream so that it's a bit more even than if you were to just drink like a two liter bottle of Coke in five minutes flat, that might, <laughs> that's not going to make you feel great. Crunch on a sugar cube. Yeah. But, um, you know, like, there's there's been a lot in the news lately that like a baked potato is the equivalent of 19 teaspoons of sugar and that's just total crap that's not how it works you know there's fiber and um complex starches in that potato that slow down the release of sugar and also you're not eating a baked potato on its own you're gonna have some like beans and cheese or some tuna and salad or something so there are other nutrients in there that buffer the, the release of sugar into your bloodstream. So it's just not as sort of straightforward as um, as people like to think it is. So the, one of the things from our sessions that I have talked about the most with people <laughs> is the time you held up a sweet potato, <laughs> a banana and a bar of chocolate and you're like, put these in order of like GI or like, you know, which one's going to give you like yeah. the, the longest kind of, uh, the, yeah, the longest release of sugar I guess is kind of my understanding of it and I I was sat there like I know that this is a trick question like you wouldn't (laughs) be asking me if it was what I thought it was but even so the best answer I could give you I think was like sweet potato then banana then chocolate and you were like yeah chocolate is the one with the lowest yeah because it's got fat in it yeah yeah it's kind of mind-blowing and I actually have so I've got the little emojis printed out and laminated and they're right by me on my desk just now I was just about to say that exact same (laughs) example because I loved I love to use it now all of those foods are low on the glycemic index but actually like if we were to rank them then chocolate has the lowest glycemic index because it's got some protein because it's got some fat in there to slow down the release of sugar so you know looking at things like glycemic index glycemic load are one way that we can think about food but it's a very one-dimensional flat way of looking mm. at food. Um, and it's also like if, if we're hyper-focused on the nu- nutritional value of food, it just sucks the joy and the pleasure out of eating. And ultimately, eating should bring us joy. It should bring us pleasure. And that's not something that we should be afraid of. Because when we're relaxed, when we're enjoying our food, you know, we digest it better. Um, it, you know, overall, our sense of well-being is going to be a lot higher and you know one of the reasons that they think that the mediterranean diet is um as sort of healthy if you want to use that word as as it is is because of the sort of social Mm. um conviviality of sharing that meal it's not just down to the food that you're eating but it's how you're eating it as well i feel like and probably some wine yeah some wine some sunshine (laughs) yeah um 
I feel like actually what all of this kind of sits so nicely hand in hand with is the way that we find it much easier to prioritize physical health over mental health, which is an ongoing problem. And so we can say, oh, this diet's good for your physical body because it does X, Y, and Z. And no one thinks about the cost and the repercussions on our mental health. I think people are starting to wake up to that a bit more now. Um, And certainly anecdotally, my clients have told me like, that's the biggest thing that intuitive eating has given them is that mental freedom um, that, you know, they're, and I'm not making any like claims, but, you know, I've had clients say things like, um, you know, it's really helped with their mental health as well. Like people who have depression and anxiety and things. So, and, and that does seem to be what the, the research is indicating as well, is that that sort of reducing anxiety around food and that preoccupation with food allows us to more fully participate in our lives. Well, let's hope that your book, Going Out to the World as a Manifesto for <laughs> everything we've talked about and so much more is going to have an impact as well. I'm really excited. I'm going to be buying it for everybody I know. I think that that's a good a good way to help them and hopefully a good way to spread the word how else can we help spread the message well I was just gonna say I'm also really excited about your book (laughs) thank you Uh, but one thing that I'm doing this January that I'm really excited about is I have a little Instagram campaign going so we've developed a set of stickers within Instagram stories and what we're doing is encouraging people to take pictures of product products, adverts, magazine articles, like displays and shops that are really pushing diet culture down our throat this January. And just saying that, you know, I'm unsubscribing with this. I'm, I'm, I'm unsubscribing from diet culture this January. I'm focusing on self-acceptance rather than, you know, predicating that on the size of my body and um, slapping a sticker on it, tagging me at Laura Thomas PhD. And then I'm just sharing as many of them as I can um, to sort of, you know, spread the resistance a little bit. Like we're pushing back against diet culture this January. And it's amazing how that works. Like just seeing those on my stories in the last few days has been like, oh, I'm not alone in this. Like, yes, I can do this because other people are seeing it too. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been really nice. I've had some nice messages from people who are really struggling with it. And They've, they've said to me like, oh, I've actively gone out and sought it out and like pushed back against it. And that's really helped just kind of, I don't know, wire their brain to be like, fuck you, diet culture. Yeah. Well, we kind of need to get angry. I feel like, you know, that's how we're going to get past this. I 100% agree. Laura, thank you so much. Where can people find you online to find out more as well as buying your book? So you can find me uh, at Laura Thomas PhD across social media. My website is laurathomasphd.co.uk. My podcast is called Don't Salt My Game. And my clinic is the London Center for Intuitive Eating. So if you're looking for a helping hand with um, your sort of intuitive eating journey, then um, you can work with some of my clinicians at the London Center for Intuitive Eating. And you do Skype consultations, which is how I work with you, isn't it? So I do. You can be yeah. anywhere in the world, presumably. You can. Yeah, we have clients all over the place. It's kind of cool. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks, Sarah. I've put full show notes for this episode at meandola.co.uk forward slash podcast 60. And if you're anything like me, after hearing that, you're going to be thirsty to hear more from Laura. So do check out her Instagram where she shares 
real advice and great tips all of the time and her book just eat it which is available everywhere now i've linked to both of those in the show notes which should now show up in your podcast app with clickable links as well i'm off to go and eat some carbs now and drink some water but i will see you next week